The Book of Annandale 2. Damaris by Edwin Arlington Robinson. Read for LibriVox.org by John Paul Nelson. Look where she would, feed conscience how she might. There was but one way now for Damaris, one straight way that was hers, hers to defend, at hand, imperious. But the nearness of it, the flesh-bewildering simplicity, and the plain strangeness of it thrilled again that wretched little quivering single string which yielded not, but held her to the place where now, for five triumphant years, had slept the flameless dust of Argan. He was gone, the good man she had married long ago, and she had lived, and living she had learned, and surely there was nothing to regret. Much happiness had been for each of them, and they had been like lovers to the last, and after that, and long, long after that. Her tears had washed out more of widowed grief than smiles had ever told of other joy. But could she, looking back, find anything that should return to her in the new time, and with relentless magic uncreate? This temple of new love where she had thrown dead sorrow on the altar of new life? Only one thing, only one thread was left. When she broke that, when reason snapped it off. And once for all, baffled, the grave let go the trivial, hideous hold it had on her. Then she were free, free to be what she would, free to be what she was. And yet she stayed, leashed, as it were, and with a cobweb strand, close to a tombstone, maybe to starve there. But why to starve? And why stay there at all? Why not make one good leap and then be done forever, and at once with Argan's ghost, and all such outworn churchyard servitude? For it was Argan's ghost that had held the string, and her sick fancy that held Argan's ghost, held it and pitied it. She laughed almost. There for the moment, but her strained eyes filled with tears, and she was angry for those tears, angry at first, then proud, then sorry for them. So she grew calm, and after a vain chase for thoughts more vain, she questioned of herself what measure of primeval doubts and fears were still to be gone through that she might win persuasion of her strength and of herself to be what she could see that she must be, no matter where the ghost was. And the more she lived, the more she came to recognize that something out of her thrilled ignorance was luminously, proudly being born, and thereby proving thought by forward thought the prowess of its image, and she learned at length to look right on to the long days before her without fearing. She could watch the coming course of them as if they were no more than birds that slowly, silently, and irretrievably should wing themselves uncounted out of sight. And when he came again, she should be free. She would be free. Else, when he looked at her, she must look down, defeated, and malignly dispossessed of what was hers to prove, and in the proving wisely to consecrate. And if the plague of that perverse defeat should come to be, if at that sickening end she were to find herself to be the same poor prisoner that he had found at first, then she must lose all sight and sound of him. She must abjure all possible thought of him, for he would go so far and for so long from her that love even a love like this, exiled enough, might for another's touch be born again, born to be lost and starved for and not found, or, at the next, the second wretchedest, 
it might go mutely flickering down and out, and on some incomplete and piteous day, some perilous day to come, she might at last learn, with a noxious freedom, what it is to be at peace with ghosts. Then, were the blow thrice deadlier than any kind of death could ever be, ten know that she had won the truth too late. There were the dregs indeed of wisdom, and of love the final thrust unmerciful, and there where now did lie so plain before the straight radiance of what was her appointed way to take, were only the bleak ruts of an old road that stretched ahead and faded, and lay far through deserts of unconscionable years. But vampire thoughts like these confessed the doubt that love denied, and once, if never again, they should be turned away. They might come back, more craftily perchance, they might come back, and with a spirit-thirst insatiable finish the strength of her, but now, today, she would have none of them. She knew that love was true, that he was true, that she was true, and should a deathbed snare that she had made so long ago be stretched inexorably through all her life, only to be unspun with her last breathing, and were bats and threads, accursedly devised with watered ghouls, to be love's heraldry? What were it worth to live and to find Ovit that life were life, but for an unrequited incubus of outlawed shame that would not be thrown down, till she had thrown down fear and overcome the woman that was yet so much of her that she might yet go mad? What were it worth to live, to linger, and to be condemned in her submission to a common thought that clogged itself and made of its first faith its last impediment? What augured it, now in this quick beginning of new life, to clutch the sunlight and be feeling back, back with a scared fantastic fearfulness, to touch, not knowing why, the vexed-up ghost of what was gone? Yes, there was Argan's face, pallid and pinched, and ruinously marked with big, pathetic bones. There were his eyes, quiet and enlarged, fixed wistfully on hers, and there, close-pressed again within her own, quivered his cold, thin fingers, and ah, yes, there were the words, those dying words again, and hers that answered when she promised him. Promised him? Yes. And had she known the truth of what she felt that he should ask her that? And had she known the love that was to be? God knew that she could not have told him then. But then she knew it not, nor thought of it. There was no need of it, nor was there need of any problematical support whereto to cling while she convinced herself that love's intuitive utility, inexorably merciful, had proved that what was human was unpermanent, and what was flesh was ashes. She had told him then that she would love no other man, that there was not another man on earth whom she could ever love, or who could make so much as a love thought go through her brain. And he had smiled, and just before he died, his lips had made as if to say something, something that passed unwhispered with his breath, out of her reach, out of all quest of it, and then could she have known enough to know the meaning of her grief, the folly of it, the faithlessness and the proud anguish of it. There might be now no threads to punish her, no vampire thoughts to suck the coward blood, the life, the very soul of her. Yes, yes, they might come back, but why should they come back? Why was it she had suffered? Why had she struggled and grown these years to demonstrate that close without those hovering clouds of gloom, and through them here and there forever gleamed the light itself, 
the life, the love, the glory, which was of its own radiance good proof that all the rest was darkness and blind sight? And who was she? The woman she had known, the woman she had petted and called I, the woman she had pitied, and at last commiserated for the most abject and persecuted of all womankind. Could it be that she had sought out the way to measure and thereby to quench in her the woman's fear, the fear of her not fearing? A nervous little laugh that lost itself, like logic in a dream, fluttered her thoughts an instant there that ever she should ask what she might then have told so easily, so easily that Annandale had frowned. Had he been given wholly to be told the truth of what had never been before so passionately, so inevitably, confessed? For she could see from where she sat the sheets that he had bound up like a book and covered with red leather, and her eyes could see between the pages of the book, though her eyes like them were closed, and she could read as well as if she had them in her hand. What he had written on them long ago, six years ago, when he was waiting for her, she might as well have said that she could see the man himself as once he would have looked, had she been there to watch him while he wrote those words, and all for her, for her, whose face had flashed itself prophetic and unseen, but not unspirited, between the life that would have been without her and the life that he had gathered up like frozen roots out of a grave clod lying at his feet, unconsciously and as unconsciously transplanted and revived. He did not know the kind of life that he had found, nor did he doubt, not knowing it, but well he knew that it was life, new life, and that the old might then with unimprisoned wings go free, onward and all along to its own light, through the appointed shadow. While she gazed upon it there, she felt within herself the growing of a newer consciousness, the pride of something fairer than her first outclamoring of interdicted thought had ever quite foretold. And all at once, there quivered and requivered through her flesh, like music, like the sound of an old song, triumphant, love-remembered murmurings of what for passion's innocence had been too mightily, too perilously hers, ever to be reclaimed and realized until today. Today, she could throw off the burden that had held her down so long, and she could stand upright, and she could see the way to take, with eyes that had in them no gleam but of the spirit. Day or night, no matter, she could see what was to see, all that had been till now shut out from her, the service, the fulfillment, and the truth, and thus the cruel wiseness of it all. So Damaris, more like than anything, to one long prisoned in a twilight cave with hovering bats for all companionship, and after time set free to fight the sun, laughed out, so glad she was to recognize the test of what had been, through all her folly, the courage of her conscience, for she knew, now, on a late-flushed autumn afternoon, that else had been too bodeful of dead things to be endured with aught but the same old inert, self-contradicted martyrdom which she had known so long that she could look right forward through the years, nor any more shrink with a cringing prescience to behold the glitter of dead summer on the grass, or the brown-glimmered crimson of still trees across the intervale, where flashed along black-silvered the cold river. She had found, as if by some transcendent freakishness of reason, the glad life that she had sought, where naught but obvious clouds could ever be clouds to put out the sunlight from her eyes, and to put out the love light from her soul. But they were gone. Now they were all gone. 
and with a whimsied pathos, like the mist of grief that clings to newfound happiness hard-wrought, she might have pity for the small defeated quest of them that brushed her sight like flying lint, lint that had once been thread. Yes, like an anodyne, the voice of him. There were the words that he had made for her, for her alone. The more she thought of them, the more she lived them, and the more she knew the life grip and the pulse of warm strength in them. They were the first and last of words to her, and there was in them a far questioning that had for long been variously at work, divinely and elusively at work, with her and with the grave that bad been hers. They were eternal words, and they diffused a flame of meaning that men's lexicons had never kindled. They were choral words that harmonized with love's enduring chords like wisdom with release, triumphant words that rang like elemental horizons through ages out of ages, words that fed love's hunger in the spirit, words that smote, thrilled words that echoed, and barbed words that clung. And every one of them was like a friend whose obstinate fidelity, well tried, had found at last and irresistibly the way to her close conscience, and thereby revealed the unsubstantial nemesis that she had clutched and shuddered at so long. And every one of them was like a real and ringing voice, clear-toned and absolute, but of a love-subdued authority that uttered thrice the plain significance of what had else been generously vague and indolently true. It may have been the triumph and the magic of the soul, unspeakably revealed, that finally had reconciled the grim probationing of wisdom with unalterable faith. But she could feel, not knowing what it was, for the sheer freedom of it, a new joy that humanized the latent wizardry of his prophetic voice and put for it the man within the music. So it came to pass, like many a long-compelled emprise, that with its first accomplishment, almost annihilates its own severity that she could find, whenever she might look, the certified achievement of a love that had endured, self-guarded and supreme, to the glad end of all that wavering, and she could see that now the flickering world of autumn was awake with sudden bloom, newborn, perforce, of a slow burgeoning, and she had found what more than half had been the grave deluded, flesh-bewildered fear which men and women struggle to call faith, to be the paid progression to an end whereat she knew the foresight and the strength to glorify the gift of what was hers, to vindicate the truth of what she was. And had it come to her so suddenly? There was a pity and a weariness in asking that, and a great needlessness. For now there were no wretched quivering strings that held her to the churchyard any more. There were no thoughts that flapped themselves like bats around her any more. The shield of love was clean, and she had paid enough to learn how it had always been so, and the truth, like silence after some far victory, had come to her, and she had found it out as if it were a vision, a thing born so suddenly, just as a flower is born, or as a world is born, so suddenly. End of poem. This recording is in the public domain.